And our children are being dismissed to Children's Church. Have a great time down there, kids. The rest of us are one more time in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 16. We'll be looking at verses 25 through 27 today. Romans 16, we find here that the Apostle Paul closes this wonderful book of Romans very much in the same way as he began it, by praising God for the gracious gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ. The gospel message, Paul says, has always been God's plan. He's never had any other plan. It has been a mystery from before. It's been even a secret, but it's now brought forth. This was God's plan all along. And Paul here reminds us in these few verses that we are established by the gospel. And he tells us something of the mystery of the gospel as well as the grace of the God, the glory of the gospel. Let's look at these verses. Romans 16:25. Now, to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. To God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we look to this uh, amazing passage and consider the the wonder of the gospel, we pray, God, that you would open our hearts to fully receive it and to also fully give you glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are, first of all, established by the gospel. Now, to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, He is able to establish you or strengthen you. Um, There is nothing and no one in this whole universe that can give you the kind of stability you need in your life but God alone. And He is able, not only that He can do it, but He has the the dunamis, He has the power to establish you like no one else could. Without this, we are all just um, 
kind of blowing in the wind and tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine and the, the whim of man and the will of man and the direction of the world and we're just blown about and no stability. But God <clears throat> is able to bring the stability your life so desperately needs. He is able to establish you and the way he does that is in the gospel. You think of all the times in the Old Testament that um, it was prophesied, God will establish you. God will establish you. He, he will do it. And now Paul is telling us how that is done. We are established in the gospel. Our feet are set firm in the gospel. And God, who is able to establish you according to my gospel... It is specifically the gospel that God uses to bring about this strengthening, this establishing of us. So, uh, what does he mean by the gospel? Uh, later on in the very next book, 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about what the gospel is. He explains it. So, let's go read from his own words what he, um, he has written to the Corinthians. I know it's, it's later in your Bible, it comes after Romans, but really 1 Corinthians was written quite a bit earlier than Romans. So at an earlier time, he wrote this next book, Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and he, he, he talks about the gospel in which we are established. This is the, um, the clearest declaration of what the components of the gospel are. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. So, in its essence, it has to do with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And not only that Christ just happened to die, but he died on purpose. He died as a substitutionary atonement. He died in our place to pay for our sins. And it's put this way, Christ died for our sins. He died to pay for our sins. And this is according to the scriptures. This was God's plan from the Old Testament. Been prophesied from the beginning. From Genesis 3. That God would send a savior. Christ died for our sins. That tells us too. That the problem that we have in relating to God. Comes down to this one thing. Sin. It isn't how cute you are. How worthy you think you might be. How what, whatever you have. How rich you are. Does it, none of those things matter for anybody. 
We're all on the same level playing field. The only thing that matters, the only thing that keeps us from God is sin. And so Christ died for our sin, for that thing which separates us from him to take it out of the way. He, he dies for our sin. Not only did he die, of course, for our sin, but he was buried in, uh, in effect, uh, proving that he had indeed died and he stayed in the grave for three days. And then the third day, he rose again, again, according to the scriptures and fulfillment of the scriptures. And the resurrection is, uh, is the Father's seal of acceptance of the Son, that what he paid for is accepted in heaven as a payment, and he is risen from the dead. Because he lives, we have life in him. He is our life. So the gospel relates to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and those who trust in him and in his finished work on the cross have their sins taken away forever. That's the gospel in which we stand. Now, Paul brings out an an interesting uh, point here in verse 2. Uh, by which you are saved. Okay, if we believe in this, it's by this gospel that we are saved. If, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So, It is possible for someone to perhaps hear the words of this gospel and even give some kind of acknowledgement to it. Yeah, it sounds good, sounds reasonable. But they and they believe it, but in an empty way. They believe it, but it's in vain. It's it's like the parable of the, the sower who went out to sow and there was different kinds of soil and some fell on rocky soil and others fell on four different kinds of soil and only one brought forth fruit and the others for a moment seemed to take it but when cares of this world came along it was all gone, dried up. Those are like those who have believed in vain. So what is it about belief then there's, that makes it not in vain? That makes it what we might call true saving faith. Not just a mental assent or something, but a true saving faith. And the, the issue that is important to have is repentance. Now I want you to look at uh, Jesus' own words about this. In Luke chapter 24. Let's go back to to Luke 24. And verses 45 through 47.
Jesus began his ministry in Mark 1.15 with these words. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Not just believe, but repent and believe the gospel. At the end of his life, now he's giving some final instructions here in Luke uh, 24, after his resurrection and just before his ascension, verse 45, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures by which he is talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament had not been written yet. That they might understand the scriptures and comprehend them. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. In other words, it's necessary for Christ to die for our sins according to the scriptures and rise again according to the scriptures, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 47, notice this. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. This is what I want you to go out and tell them, that it was necessary, this was God's plan, that the Christ would come, <clears throat> that he would die. He, he would die on a cross, that sacrificial death in our place, that was necessary. And that he would rise again, that was also necessary. And go tell them the message of repentance and remission of sins. That is the uh, remission is the taking away of sins. That God would take away your sins. Now what we find later on in how this is expressed is sometimes we'll find just the word repentance used. And sometimes we'll find just the word believe used. But always the two ideas are interlocked. That you repent and believe the gospel as Jesus said in Mark 1.15. So for instance there would be a, uh, like the Philippian jailer. When uh, he said uh, to Paul. Uh, what must I do to be saved? And he was told to, to believe. And he would be saved. Well, why didn't Paul at that time say, well, you need to repent? Well, here's a guy who is broken before God already. It's not like you need to repent again or something. It was obvious that has already happened. Um, but the idea of repentance of, um, is part of what it means to have saving faith. Now, to help you identify what that means, what does the word repentance itself mean? Look at the back of your bulletin. There's a, an extended definition here that I want to work through with you. This is taken from uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, page 713. And he begins this, this opening paragraph as kind of a summary statement of what he says about repentance. It's actually a four-page document that we have that I have made copies for you and put out uh, by where the name tags are if you want to see all four pages because he goes into a lot more detail. This is a, 
uh, a definition that we as the uh, elders of this church subscribe to that we would say yeah th this is a good way of saying this it's one by the way that uh, Andy McGowan in case you're wondering also says yes this is a good statement of what repentance is so we may define repentance as follows this is Wayne Grudem repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin a renouncing of it and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ now helpfully this next paragraph explains what he just said so if we keep going in case you're wondering what does that mean here we go this definition indicates that repentance is something that can occur at a specific point in time and is not equivalent to a demonstration of change in a person's pattern of life. That is, it's not something that you're looking for, somebody has to prove to you over a long period of time, but it's something that occurs in a point in a person's life. So, he goes on to say that repentance like faith really has three main components dealing with our, our mind, our heart, and our will. Repentance like faith, faith is, first of all, an intellectual understanding, meaning that sin is wrong. We have to at least begin there with an intellectual assent and understanding, yes, I get it, sin is wrong. But of course, if we stop there, that wouldn't be enough, right? Someone could say sin is wrong. Yeah, that's wrong. I'm still going to do it, but it's wrong. And so it's more than that. Repentance like faith is an intellectual understanding. It begins there. Sin is wrong. It's also an emotional uh, approval of the teaching of, of Scripture regarding sin. That is, in our own heart, we resonate with what God says about sin. That that really we should have a sorrow for sin and a hatred for it and even an aversion to it that we don't want it in our life. It's, instead of loving our sin, we would like to be rid of our sin. And third, affecting the will or affected by the will and a personal decision to turn from it that is a renouncing of sin and a decision of the will to forsake it and lead a life of obedience to Christ instead. So it is a you, person comes to a decision, I'm, I'm going to renounce my sin, I confess it, yes I've sinned against God, I know that it's wrong, I do not want to follow that path and I, I want to walk away from that. I want to give that up. Now, a helpful clarification here that Grudem gives. Because this could be misunderstood, and I think it very often is. So, this bold part next is a very important clarification. We cannot say that someone has to actually live that changed life over a period of time before repentance can be genuine. Or else repentance would be turned into a kind of obedience that we could do to merit salvation for ourselves. 
You see the potential danger here? That if we were to say, you, you have to repent first and then come to Christ, how that would be saying to someone, you have to, on your own, make that decision and give up those things and prove it, and then maybe you could... Well, we certainly wouldn't want to say that. That's not true. Repentance comes as a work of God. Um, in fact, John 16 tells us it is a work of the Holy Spirit to bring about repentance. I can't cause someone to repent, nor can you. I don't think a person in their own self can cause themselves to repent. It's simply a yielding of that self to the prompting, the working, the guiding of the Holy Spirit within them that's leading them to repent, to acknowledge their sin and turn from it. It's a response to the Holy Spirit's work that brings it about. Now, having said that of course genuine repentance will result in a changed life so if a person is coming to Christ they understand the gospel that Christ died for them they understand the, that their sin is against them and it's, they, they want to be rid of it and the Holy Spirit is convicting them of this then they come to faith in Christ and they're trusting in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior then what's going to happen going forward from that point is there will be a changed life that's, that's going to be one, one of the ways to tell in fact a good tree is known by its fruit and a bad tree is known by its fruit and one of the ways you can tell that someone has genuinely come to Christ in saving faith that they have not indeed believed in vain but have believed with saving faith trusting Christ genuine repentance will result in a changed life in fact a truly repentant person will begin at once to live a changed life and we can call that changed life the fruit of repentance but we should never attempt to require that there be a period of time in which a person actually lives a changed life before we give assurance of forgiveness. See how he's, he's walking a very careful line here because you could fall off on one side or the other pretty easily into license or legalism on either side of this very thin line and try to state it as biblically as possible. I think Grudem is is being very careful and, and wisely so. Um, repentance is something that occurs in the heart and involves the whole person in a, in a decision to turn from sin. Now, I happen to believe with all my heart that it is God who saves people and not people. God simply uses people as instruments we have the treasure of the gospel in these earthen vessels we are to be faithful with the treasure to give out the treasure but our trust is in God to work in people by his Holy Spirit working in their heart and, and touching their heart enabling them to see that they're, they're sinners lost without Christ and he will do the work of convicting them of bringing them to repentance 
Now, I, I've used this illustration before, and um, I think it's effective enough to bring up again. I just want you to think about a wedding ceremony here. We have a, um, have a bride and a, a groom up here. And they're in the midst of sharing their vows. And um, so I say to the bride, and do you, uh, forsaking all others, promise to cling to your husband alone as long as you shall live? And if she says, no, that's not going to work for me. That's, that's kind of boxing me in a little bit too much here. Uh, I like the rest of it. You know, I like, you know, sharing and stuff and so forth. And, but, but that part is that, no. Is, is her heart really ready for marriage? We would say, you know, maybe we ought to cancel this thing for now. Back off from this. What if a person coming to Christ, or we are, we're trying to share the gospel with them and we want them to come to Christ. We want them to enter into that covenant relationship like a marriage is a covenant relationship. We want them to become part of the bride, the bride of Christ. And that person says, I like the part about, you know, getting all my sins paid for and I get to go to heaven for free, but the part about living for him, I mean, I'm not really into that. Is that person ready to enter that relationship? I would say no. I, I would say that the problem is their heart is not ready that the spirit has not done has not done the work inside of them to bring them to the point of understanding they need a lord over their life besides them now back to uh, Romans 16 So we turn back here. Remember the words of Paul in Philippians 2.13. It is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He is the one who brings about saving faith and repentance. He is the one who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13. Now, back in Romans 16, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. What, by my gospel, Paul doesn't mean that his gospel is different from Peter's gospel, distinct from John's gospel. He's just saying the gospel that I'm preaching. And he says, in fact, in Galatians 1:11, that he received this gospel not from other men, but he received it by direct revelation from Christ himself. Uh, Galatians 1, 11 and 12. 
He also defines it as this way. And, and according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ because that is the cornerstone of the gospel the most important part without Christ there is no gospel and in fact he says if you look over the next uh, book 1 Corinthians 2 and I brethren when I came to you did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified that's what I want to know about you have you heard about Christ have you heard about his death have you heard about his resurrection that's what he wanted to know that was the gospel and as he preached the gospel to them we know uh, from Acts chapter 18 that God sent a, a, a massive revival among the Corinthians and even some who were in the synagogue believed the leader of the synagogue believed and a number of prominent Greeks believed and many people of that city came to Christ confessing their sins trusting in him as savior so it's the, the proclamation of Jesus Christ it's the core of the gospel but now Paul talks about something else the mystery of the gospel he says according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations so there's a the mystery of the gospel according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began the idea the meaning of mystery is that there was something hidden in former times in earlier days that is now being made known something that was obscure that is being uncovered something that was not knowable that is being made plain God is now unfolding his plan. He has been unfolding it from the beginning, little by little. But now it is fully revealed. It has been a secret since the world began. How God was going to save man. But that has now been revealed. Well, what's the reason for the mystery? I mean, why didn't God come out to say it in Genesis chapter 3 the whole thing well there are a number of reasons but I just want to point to uh, one reason here in a nearby context if we look again at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 uh, starting at verse 6 <clears throat> however we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, 
they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Part of the mystery was concealed, not just from mankind as God was developing his plan, but from the rulers of darkness, from the enemy, from the one who would seek to thwart the work of the cross. And though Satan thought he had won, when Christ was on that cross, he had him there. Had he known the plan, he would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But in, in getting the, the people of Israel the, and the, the Pharisees and the Romans worked up to this fever pitch and they crucified him, they were actually fulfilling God's determined plan kept secret from before the world began. Unwittingly, they were being used by God. Otherwise, they would not have done it. Now, the content of this mystery is Ephesians chapter 3. We won't take time to look at it, but let me just... That would be a great thing for you to read later. It's basically that the Gentiles were going to become part of the people of God. That it's not just Abraham's descendants, physical descendants, and Israel. It is people of God become people of God like Abraham did by faith. And so he was going to bring together in the whole world one people under his name by the gospel. And that's the, uh, the mystery itself, the contents of it, Ephesians 3. But now he's talking more about the removal of the mystery. Uh, he says it was kept secret since the world began in verse 26, but now made manifest or made clear. And, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. It is um, by the prophetic scriptures as we saw, for instance, in Luke 24, where, where we're told that Jesus opened their understanding to the scriptures so that they would know that it was that Christ had to suffer and die. God had long ago given the message, even though it was not completely clear. But now it is according to God's command. That is, it was God's determined will to bring forth the provision for and the message of the gospel at this specific time in history. He decided this is when. Now is the time. Can't you just imagine up in heaven finally saying to the angels, now's the day. Go tell Mary she's going to have a baby. And the ball starts rolling. Now's the time. In the fullness of time, God brought forth his son to redeem those who are under the law according to God's command. And it is for obedience to faith. <clears throat> for obedience to faith. The word for here indicates purpose. ESV says to bring about obedience of faith. New American Standard says leading to obedience of faith. That's the idea. It's for not just to bring about faith, but to bring about obedience. Not just that people would believe something, but that they would live by what they believe. 
Not that they would just trust Christ to save them, but that they would follow Christ as their Lord. So faith and obedience are interwoven together. And finally, the glory of the gospel. Verse 27 says, To God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. We began verse 26 with um, an incomplete sentence. As Paul says, Now to him who is able to establish you, now to him, he doesn't finish that thought to who that is, to him, until he gets to verse 27, meaning to God. To him who's able to establish you as the God of glory, verse 27. To God alone wise. <clears throat> all glory to him. And, and we will all fully acknowledge that in his presence. We should today, but I think... Uh, we still have some blinders on today, but then we will all fully acknowledge forever that all glory to God for his marvelous plan of the gospel and salvation in Christ. Who alone is wise, to God alone wise. Only God could have come up with such a plan. You know what I'm going to do? To save these people who hate me, who reject me, who are rebels. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to nail my holy son to a cross. That's what I'm going to do. Who would have come up with that plan? God only wise. He did. And it is the glory of the gospel is through Christ. It is all through Christ. He is the means by which our salvation comes. In Romans 3.23, having said that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us have. The very next verse says, Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption of that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.1. Remember how he said. Therefore having been justified by faith. We have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8. He said that God demonstrated his love toward us. In this. That while we were yet sinners. Christ died in our place for us. Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Romans 7 24 and 25 Paul asked who shall save me from this wretched man that I am I thank my God through Jesus Christ Romans 8 1 there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus the glory of the gospel is always through the person of Christ 
One more passage I want you to consider and we'll be done. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Colossians 2 verses 13 and 14 remember at one time that without Christ a person is dead They're spiritually dead. They cannot do anything of their own. And you, he says, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Isn't that a great word, all That little word, all. He has forgiven you every single one if you trust him. And how did he do that? Verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. Now you might think of having wiped those out would be kind of like um, one way to view that is all your sins are written up on a blackboard and a whiteboard these days and God wipes them out right that's one way to view it but it's more than that that's true but it's more than that the having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us that it's a a legal phrase here actually it means um, the, the statement of the debt you owe he wiped out your debt it was the handwriting of the of the requirements that is uh, if a person had something something against you and you were going to go into debtor's prison they would bring that document against you and on it would be written this is how much this person owes and why they need to be thrown into jail that statement of your debt that was against you that was contrary to you it was your undoing here's what he did he didn't just wipe it off like it was on a whiteboard he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross this is what Christ did for you He took your sin, all of it, your whole debt. And when the nails were being driven into him, your debt was being nailed to the cross. With each hammer blow, your debt was being nailed to that very cross. And everyone who comes to that cross and seeks forgiveness has eternal life.
I don't know about you today where your heart is, but if you've never understood the gospel or what it takes to have saving faith, I plead with you not to leave here today without doing business with God. He's done everything that is required for you to have eternal life. If you will turn to Him, He will save you. For those of us who already know Him, this is a passage that just ignites our heart, didn't it? <clears throat> it just delights us to know, and it also humbles us to know that God loved us this much. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to die there for our sin. As we think about our own sin and our life, Lord, we want to be rid of it. We want to walk in you. We want to walk in newness of life and I pray, God, for any here who, who have not come to you in confessing their sin and receiving your salvation, that even today your Holy Spirit might guide them to embrace you. To say, yes, Lord Jesus, I, I trust you. I confess and forsake my sin I thank you for dying for it. Lord, for all of us, we are, are just so grateful for the new life that we have in you that will never end. We pray, God, that we might be faithful to this message, to share it with other people, to live it in our own lives, to be good testimonies, and that by all of this we would see people come to know you and true saving faith and that you would be much glorified because of it in Jesus name amen, amen. and